Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this month's um, Cold Chain Catch-Up. Um, I'm Tom Southall, the Policy Director at the Cold Chain Federation, and joined, as always, by Shane Brennan. Hi, Shane. Good morning, everyone. So for those of you who haven't tuned into the Cold Chain Catch-Up before, this is where Shane and I have a bit of a chat about what's been going on um, in the world of, of policy and, and other areas as well um, over the last few weeks, um, and specifically trying to make understand what that means for those of us um, operating in the UK cold chain. Um, you're welcome to add your thoughts to the questions tab. If you've got anything you points you want to make or things you think we might have missed and that you want us to talk about, then drop that into the, the question box on the right-hand side of the panel. Um, but we may as well dive straight into it, Shane. And I think um, it's become customary on these to start off with a, your kind of analysis of what's been going on in the world of politics and trying to make that sort of relevant to, to those of us in the cold chain. And I think this month um, dominated by leadership battle. And we started with range of candidates and some sort of new faces in there, but ultimately we've ended up with two very familiar faces um, who squared off yesterday in a debate um, around you know how they would change things for the world to become a leader. And I think the thing that stood out to me was, oh, disappeared um but for those of you that, that didn't catch the um the debate liz truss and and sunak going head to head um around the changes they would make were they to become pm and i think the big one shane was around tax perhaps the big differentiator between the two is how they would approach tax and the cost of living and which yeah that's obviously of great interest yeah. to us i think i think you call it familiar familiar people i'm not sure how familiar they are to the wider public i think that's one of the realities of, of, of political life is that you know we don't we don't have a lot of cut through for the people that are in the uh more junior well below below the prime minister a lot of people in the country don't know who any of the, the main players are but you no know, you are right to say that we have having had a lot of talk over the last two or three weeks about some more insurgent candidates coming up through the ranks the reality is we've got the immediate path Chancellor of the Exchequer versus the, the current Foreign Secretary, which is sort of two of the, the main jobs in Cabinet that are up against each other for the leadership. Um, I'm not going to try and do, I mean, as much as I would love to, I'm not going to do the kind of just, you know, Times columnist, uh, you know, talk radio uh, analysis piece on the big picture, because I think you can get that from the radio. The point here is what does it mean for us? Um, and I guess the key things to point out here, firstly, is that the fact that this is happening slows everything else down you know ever since the the the, the resignations of ministers and the sort of you know uh, political intrigue of the sort of fall of boris johnson about which is only about three weeks ago um through this leadership contest and into the uh the period up to when the new prime minister takes office um is a period of what's called caretaker government and there are a number of you know, there are ministers in every post at one point we were worried there weren't going to be ministers um, because of the number of resignations, but obviously there is a now a full complement of ministers, but they're all caretakers and they're not going to be making big decisions on key policy areas. They're not going to be driving a lot forward, much as what they, they say they will. Um, and so that's, you know, in some ways it's good on the issues that potentially we don't necessarily want to see them driving ahead too quickly, but more, 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 more to the, the bigger issue really is that that's a, a big frustration for uh, at a time of quite economic uh, precariousness. Um, the cost of living and, and inflation and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's one of the things you thought as you read, as you listen to the debate, and I was listening to the debate last night between Truss and Sunak. I mean, you start from the point of view of frustration at how superficial 
the conversation they're having is, given the, the weight of the issues that, that we're, they're up against. And I think there isn't a lot of recognition from those leaders about this, how difficult things are going to be this winter. I would point in particular to the announcement last week from the European Union that's asking member states of the European Union to voluntarily reduce their gas usage by 15%. 15% is the amount of energy that's used by Spain in a year. And the EU is asking the, the, the countries to, uh, to reduce their usage by that amount voluntarily and saying that if they can't do so on a voluntary basis, they need to potentially take powers to try and force that to be the case. Now, we don't have the same exposure to uh, Russian oil and gas supplies that the um, that the, uh, the, 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 the the parts of the European continent do, but we are absolutely in the firing line for the effects of that. You know, scarcity of oil, we start and gas, we start competing for that with the with the Europeans trying to buy more on the on the on the wider market that increases up prices. Um, the, uh, the the implications of of the geopolitical instability that causes the implications for supply chains if different parts of manufacturing have to sort of shut down or slow down as a result of of, of these of these of these shortages those sorts of things are unprecedented in our modern lifetime we have to go back to the war 1945 or possibly the sort of downturns of the 1970s to really see an example of that and that's going to be a real shock to the system i don't think either the leaders are really talking about how the government sets itself up to deal with that 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 situation um also on the domestic front the scale of the pressure coming down on domestic households that's going to be facing us in the in the autumn is is, is pretty scary you know look at the issues around Around, around just domestic energy prices and how that how how affordable that is for the vast uh, chunk of of, of, of people uh, people who work in cold chain people who work in our warehouses people who drive our vehicles these people are going to face inordinate increases in their household costs and um, also as we sort of see this inflation issue driving through the economy the increase pressure to increase interest rates which has impacts on borrowing of which obviously we are significantly exposed particularly in our domestic consumer base all of these things are absolutely top of the in-trade for the new prime minister and it isn't really part of the discussion is, is, is quite superficial it's about whether or not we should be you know, not bringing in the corporation tax increase for large companies you know, to, in next year or or, or, or cancelling it whether we should be doing the oil and gas levy or not doing the oil and gas levy uh, on taxation these things are being blown up as big ideological differences but really they are just dancing around the fundamentals now whether or not any prime minister can actually deal with this stuff is, is, is a different point of course there's a few bigger bits in there, isn't there? Like Truss has said she'll reverse the national insurance rise um, and actually cut taxes from day one, whereas Sunak won't do that. So there are, it strikes me that's, that is the one area where there might be some some difference. But as to whether that causes a you know a, a quicker journey to recession and what what impact that actually has on the economy seems they both got very different views. But I mean, I'm not sure which not being an economist which. Which is right. Should we be? Yeah, I, think it's more I think it's more. I think it's overemphasized. I think it's style over substance. But nonetheless, nonetheless, yeah. you're right. And the NRI is probably the one that you would point to that would have a potentially direct impact on, 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 on cost for employers. But the I, I think the, one of the things that the thing was all about labour supply. And actually, what what, what you one of the other the other thing that underpins that discussion is, um, to what extent. Uh, can we reform the supply side issues that are causing inflation in our economy? So how do we create more input into the economy in order to reduce the prices? And it, obviously, energy is the obvious one we've talked about. But the other one's labour. 
And when you talk about an, 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 an cost of cost of employee employees, now obviously reducing the NI insurance rate is a way of doing that. But you would do that really well. You can assume that by uh, by by trying to bear down on the cost of of taxation and of bringing on employees or employment, you would be able to increase the labour supply. But what we know in our economy is there isn't enough employees. Now we already have pretty much universal employment. We already have a situation where the cost of labor, of wages are going up, and we've got these inflationary pressures in the economy, which are pushing the demand for increased wages up um, over and massively outstrips the issues around the national insurance rise. So this issue of, of how we get more labor into the economy through whatever route is not being discussed. And I think you know things like things that are taboo, you know, immigration issues. Issues of, of the closing down of freedom of movement, not part of the discussion. That's that's a you the both both are absolutely clear on that. They both want to buy buy cruise ships to lock up immigrants and and, and other things. You know, they're they're real racing to to to, to constraint on that. So yeah, so I think it's I think what am I trying to say? It's also very pessimistic. I don't think ultimately whether Rishi Tunak is the Prime Minister or Liz Truss is the Prime Minister is in itself gonna have a major bearing on what's coming down the track for us in the autumn. Um and so, um, the, and, and the reality is that while we're waiting to find out who it's going to be, we have got we're sort of wasting a little bit of time in trying to sort of get ahead of some of these these challenges. You mentioned sort of immigration stuff, and I think we've got a couple of updates on on goings on kind of around the border. And the one that's captured a lot of the news is is obviously the queues in Dover, which the government have been very clear is not our fault. It's not Brexit. It's it's France border control, and it's it's the French who who are at fault. Um, I know you've followed very closely going on at the border. Um, is that right? Is it? You grew up in yeah. France, I think. Did you blame it's, the French? <laughs> I grew up in France, therefore I have insight. Um, um, <laughs> the, um, the, yes, I mean the, the, the queue on Saturday was the French didn't turn up to work on time, or at least at the time that they'd agreed that they would, according to Dover. And that I think is a genuine problem. And and but ultimately that, that needs to stop at passport control. Is a Brexit? It's a function of Brexit. Now, there's a discussion around the ministers whether it isn't or it is, it is or it isn't. But we've gone from waving through people at that booth, those booths. Everyone knows about supply chain pinpoints or logistics pinpoints. The the, the the French border control point at the port of Dover is a pinch point. It was. It, you've gone from taking you know, a few seconds, ten seconds, to move through that booth to a minute, to a minute and a half. That slows everything down. And that's the reality of that's the reality of that of that of that interlude. There is an issue around staffing. There is an issue around infrastructure. There's an issue around road uh, configuration in, in the port of Dover. But these issues are absolutely to the fore because of because of those increased interruptions um, that, that are there in the process. Um, the debate and the conversations with 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 journalists and others over the last two days is about you know how can we create the seamless border. And the idea is how can we create new systems and approaches to the way that good people and goods move through that part, that final point from the, between the UK and the EU. And that's an ongoing conversation at the moment. Again, it's the sort of thing that isn't being fully taken forward because we don't have a prime minister at the moment. So we're hoping that once we get to the autumn, we'll be able to get onto more concrete discussions around how we can improve flow through the border. But crucially, in all things and discussions around this, what we end up talking about is how we control flow into our country rather than flow out of our country. Because in all this thing about taking back control of our borders, we don't control what the other side does with their border. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that, on, on sort of border, and, and you mentioned immigration and, and both the prospective PM candidates uh, want to be seen to be very tough on immigration. Um, 
earlier this year they they laid the the borders and an immigration bill i think it was called um which the the, the decision to deport immigrants to rwanda obviously took a lot of the headlines um but i think what that bill did was was sort of set the foundations for lots of other future policy in that area and one thing that's come out over the last week um that's relevant to us is a review of the clandestine entrant civil penalty scheme which those who are doing cross-border haulage will will be more than aware of this is the scheme to to sort of try and prevent um entrants getting on the back of trailers and coming across the border currently there's a a maximum penalty for that of about two thousand pounds um which the, the government's keen to point out has been the case for i think about 20 years that hasn't changed but what they are currently consulting on is rapidly increasing the the sort of penalties and the the the, the crime itself under that act and it's just a consultation at this stage but it's clearly what they want to do um is not only raise that that kind of penalty from 2000 to they haven't set out exactly what they want to do they've just they're asking for comments on, on what that might be but some of the options are into the tens of thousands so a huge increase in the the risk both for the hallway themselves and the business and we're bringing in a somebody from from europe um but i think most importantly there's a, a new um crime if you like coming in or they're hoping to bring in around failing to secure a vehicle now regardless of whether anybody comes on that vehicle and over into the uk if you're judged to not have a secure vehicle, you will be liable for for um, enforcement and, and a penalty. So a, a couple of big sort of changes to that scheme. Um, obviously, this is a it's a growing issue, and we we get that from from members, especially at um, facilities where trucks are turning up and, and people are perhaps jumping off the back. Um, and it's a serious issue as well. We've had some really tragic cases all over the world, particularly in temperature controlled vehicles, which are often um, targeted for for this um, because of their their rigidity, um, they can be harder to detect people within them. Um, but it's a huge change, and it does increase the pressure potentially on hauliers themselves. Um, and we we mustn't forget, Shane. I think that this is often perpetrated by organised crime. The, the people doing this, it's it's often the hauliers aren't aware that this is happening, and they're targeted by organised criminals who target the vehicles and put people on. Clearly, we do need um secure vehicles but it does add that pressure on to people doing cross-border trade who are already dealing with queues yeah, and checks I mean, that's another layer of, of kind of risk i guess to, to people I think, doing I, I think this is untalked about the the the, the 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 human pressure and difficulty that the drivers face bringing goods basically doing running the gauntlet of driving through northern france to uh to, to the crossing uh points um, with the risk and the fear of being potentially being um, held up or, or having people climbing onto the vehicle or trying to get onto the vehicle. You know, business, vehicles are stopping further and further away, but as they stop further and further away from, from Calais in order to get that they are, um, they, they're finding that the migrants are moving further and further away to try and get onto their vehicles. But of course, the, as you say, Tom, the vast majority of this, of this type of thing is not done by the inadvertent. It's not a mistake. That they, that they, or or a or a sort of a, a, a jump on because when when the driver wasn't looking situation, more often than not it's actually complicit complicit in some way. Um, that's certainly the case with things like the people that died at uh, at Tilbury. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 the thing about this is it's an open it's a bit of an open sore for reputation of our industry. You know, when it comes to this issue, 
there are those in government, we talk to them in the Home Office and, and, and in the police and others, who sort of view our industry with suspicion as a result of this being a problem. And we have to basically confront that head on and be aware of and be part of the conversation about how this issue is tackled. But we, what we've got to not do is accept that in some way that we exist, therefore we're the problem. The reality is that we, that, you know, this is a criminal uh, enterprise that has a significant amounts of money and time and, 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 and you know, organised crime behind it. And our, we, our members are as much a victim of that as, as anybody else. So the balance of the penalties and the balance, balance of the inter interventions have to be in the right place. We don't want to see huge amounts of, 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 of weight brought down on the head of, of, of responsible operators in order to try and uh, to try to try and deter organised criminals and what going to be deterred by that. And what, what stands out to me is clearly this is a, a cross-country, cross-border issue. Um, what I haven't seen is a clear plan of how UK government will work with French and others, um, a clear policy on trying to cut down on the organised crime to cut it out at source. It seems to be at the moment it's it's being dealt with, you know, we're, we're putting the punishment onto hauliers and asking hauliers to do that work. Um, but there needs to be a clearer plan on, on how to deal with this issue, to stop it at source, to catch some of those organised criminals, um, to support hauliers, not just place the blame on them and, and, and ask them to do all of the work to prevent it happening. Work with the French? What are you talking about? This is post-Brexit Britain. We don't, we don't we don't work with the French. Um, yeah, but no, it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a really really important point. I guess what so what's the what's the next steps, Tom, from our point of view? So next steps, these are just proposals at this stage, um, but we know this is what the government are hoping to do. The consultation is out until September, so we'll be responding obviously on behalf of of our members, and I'll be talking to sort of equivalents at the RHA and other organisations but be if anybody is affected by this um, please get in touch because having your real world examples and obviously I'll be reaching out to members um, but essentially we've got the summer to formulate a response to this um, and, and that's what I'll be doing. We also authored a while ago some guidance on how to deal with these issues particularly issues not so much well some of the deterrence issues but mainly the issues around what you do if you are a victim of of, of this and there are also members like Open International that provide a distress load service so you can sort of Deal with the consequences of of, of having uh, migrants sort of tri illegally travelling on your vehicle and causing some some uh, risk to your stock. So that's available to uh, to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on, we you talked about we talked about inflation a bit, and clearly that's that's still number one issue. No sign of that um, easing. In fact, it's it continues to increase along with potential rise in interest rates. Something that caught my eye this week were a couple of stories that kind of show how we're changing i guess as a in the food industry but also in in the kind of wider work environment linked to that issues inflation the first was um co-op chain announcing um quite a large number of job cuts um, i think mainly from the head office function at this stage but directly linking that to the impacts of inflation and, and people's changing um purchasing habits at their stores um which yeah, struck me as we've been talking about some of these potential issues of people spending less, being more thrifty, and the impact that might have on the food chain. It's the first sort of concrete thing I've seen of one of the big retailers actually acknowledging that and making job cuts as a result. Is that is it the is that the first of, of many? Do we think of those kind of announcements? 
I think I'd work, there's always, 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 there's always a wave of, of, of you know, as, as the ups and downs of, of, the, of, the, of the winners and losers of, uh, of, of retail, grocery retail, and it has to, the reaction to that is always quite brutal in terms of how the businesses try to react to, to stay ahead. Um, I think, the, I think this back to the theme, the uncertainty of the period, the, the uncertainty of demand flows, the pressure to try and meet a consumer need that is increasingly difficult to predict. Um, is, is going to play out across the economy. I think if you look at the recent grocer, this week's grocer magazine, you can see that you know the, the trend is towards the discounters. It's the Aldi and Lidl uh, effect, and that's you know that rears up quite a lot over the, over the last decade, 20 years. You know, the story of the growth and, and, and attraction to the discounters is a, is a running story. Um, but I think that's going to particularly play out as people feel the pinch. They're going to be looking for the the cheaper option and the, therefore the convenience store option, which is what the co-op tends to operate in, does have more more pressure on it. I think that within all of that, obviously the issue for us is how do they manage their supply chains? Um, how are they looking at issues like availability, availability on shelf? How are they looking at stock holdings? How are they looking at these these costly or how are they looking at their cost centres and how are they looking at their cash flow? And I think those things will be. Um, the focus of, of, of how things play out for us over the course of the next few months um, within that. I think and another interesting move, I think you know, if you're going to come on to it, is the fact that uh, we've just announcement that Marks & Spencer has acquired GIST. Um, GIST obviously the long-standing supply chain partner of Marks & Spencer's, uh, but always a separate entity servicing other customers as well, although the vast majority of their business was through Marks & Spencer's. Um, now being a, a subsidiary of and therefore part of Marks & Spencer's is an interesting decision by Marks and Spencer to take control of their supply chain. I think they've had a very pretty difficult time of it, relatively speaking, in terms of getting their supply chain working through the pandemic and through Brexit. I think this move is a way to try and, uh, try and get back on top of, of things from their perspective. Yeah, and it, it sort of pointed out, highlighted to me, I guess, that acquisition that we, it feels to me this year, we have seen a slowdown in some of the sort of, I know that's a, that's a sort of, it's a slightly different thing, but in previous years, we've seen lots of inward investment. We've talked about that a lot. International investment into cold chain, cold chain businesses acquiring each other seems to have slowed down a bit this year. Is that is that your perspective too, or is that just there hasn't been any for a few months? Um, I think it has. It's hard to know, but I think it has slowed down. Yeah. Um, well, clearly it has slowed down as you identified. Um, I mean, there's a lot of development going on. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of cold storage space being built right now. Um, so some of the sort of effects of the, the deals, the major deals that we've seen in the last two or three years are still playing through in terms of their implications for, for cold chain. So there's still capacity being added and, and, and investment being made. But in terms of business acquisitions, yeah, it has slowed down somewhat. And I wonder whether there is an element of pausing to see how things settle down um, through this tumultuous period. Um, and then we'll see whether there is there's a new wave of it uh, in the into next year and beyond. But you know, who knows at this stage? Yeah. It's a bit early to tell, but um, yeah, just just my perception maybe. Um, the other thing that I spotted, sort of linked to inflation again, is um, what, and I think it was the Guardian to be fair, but they termed the the great unretirement. Oh, no. Yeah, sorry, I shouldn't reveal uh, <laughs> reveal sources, should I? But um, the great unretirement, which is apparently lost a significant proportion of older workers who previously obviously retired because of the cost of living and things like that, coming back into the workforce. Um, again, I think this is it's sort of early signs of that and quite how significant that is, I think, is up for debate. But potentially when we talk about um, labour shortages um, um, and people looking for workers within their businesses, potentially it's a, a set of workers kind of 
rejoining the workforce and boosting those numbers. Um, so I'd be interested, I guess, from members, if anybody is seeing, you know, the age profile, I know we have quite an older age profile, particularly amongst drivers, but whether we're seeing some of those people who've previously been out of work because of retirement coming back into the workforce, but that's, the signs are there that that, that is what's happening, which could provide a, a kind of a boost, I guess, to, to employment, as long as people are open to, to older workers, I suppose. I think I think I think a lot of you know the 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 great resignation followed by the great unretirement desperate to, to label <laughs> thing um, in the media. Um, you certainly yeah. No, that's a feature of the pandemic was the number of people you know above in that particular fifty plus forty five to well fifty plus type age group sort of removing themselves from the workforce during furlough and not coming back. You can see a logic to saying that now's about the time when the money starts to dry up in terms of that sort of accrued income and, and, and reduced spending starting to dry up and therefore a desire to get back into earning some some money um, playing through and you know certainly in logistics there's a lot of we lost a lot of workers in that window so hopefully some of those will come back for, at least for the interim because again labor supply probably is the biggest single challenge to our to our to our ability to get through the next few months so um, you know Wherever they come from, so much the better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned, I think, earlier on the the grocer, um, obviously a an industry staple magazine, and and we were were featured in that this week um, with our new cold chain report, which hopefully most of the people on the call are aware of. But if you're not, is our, our latest publication setting out all of the data we've acquired over the last couple of years I guess on the cold chain and some new information in there as well on on things like the types of cold chain um, businesses the the impact of, of energy inflation costs on the cold chain the impact of, of the end of red diesel and, and diesel inflation lots of great sort of statistics and information on there um, which we're, we're really proud of and as I said it's been featured quite a lot in, in sort of trade press um, and been downloaded I think something like 150 200 times so if you haven't seen that it's, it's very much a starting point for us. We, Shane's had it on my to-do list for quite a while to have a, a kind of data-led, evidence-led um, report on the cold chain, and this is very much the first attempt at that. It will become an annual report, and we, we want to work with members to increase its scope and fill in some of the gaps that, that I identified over kind of producing it, which include things like, currently we're, we don't know as much about the type of employees within cold chain businesses, and we want to clear a clearer picture of what are the key roles and how many people were within those things like our economic benefit which we're we're not clear on at the moment and some other bits as well a bit more information about transport refrigeration and how many units are, are operated around among members but it's a a good start hopefully shane it'll be pretty key to us in our sort of continuing mission i guess to raise awareness of, of cold chain and our issues with policymakers and, and others as well yeah, I mean, obviously, I've said it before, but I'll say, I'll say again, you know, it's a real credit to you, Tom, the, the, the quality of the report we've now been able to produce. It's a, it's a running theme for me in the last four years that we need to know our industry best. We need to understand it, we need to explain who it is, how big it is, with the, you know, what, what, what's happening within it. And we need to explain that to the outside world in particular. You know, we need government and media and, and, and other stakeholders, other parts of the industry to understand our sector better. That's really important, but we also need to know it better for ourselves and have a common understanding and a common language of how we define what our sector is and how big it is and who the players are and these different things. That's what we are set out to do. This report is a massive step towards that, but the next step is to is 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 better quality insight and data and an ongoing process from us to be, you know, your knowledge center on those things and your reference point. And we'll continue to to invest in that in the in the months and years ahead. 
Absolutely. Well, we're coming up to half an hour, Shane. Um, don't know if a few last bits to, to kind of cover. Um, I guess Coal Chain Federation business, looking ahead over the summer and into September. Um, we're obviously gearing up for, for Coal Chain Live, which is very exciting. And I think we wanted to put it to announce today uh, an important speaker we've secured yeah. for. So Coal Chain Live, 8th and 9th September, Birmingham International Conference Centre. You know, we are we are literally, and we've seen this for a while now, but we are literally in the last handful. I think we've got about 25 tickets left for the for, for the evening and about 45, 50 tickets left for the for the day. Um, so, you know, and that's so we're going to be the biggest ever conference event for Cold Chain. It's going to be really, really fantastic. And I am delighted to say that the, the most recent sort of speaker we can announce is the is is Lord Deben, the chairman of the Committee on Climate Change. John Gummer, the, 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 you cannot get a more heavyweight, more experienced influencer of government policy than Lord Deben. Lord Deben is the, you know, the Committee on Climate Change is the oracle on, on what the government, what the government has achieved, what the government needs to do, and how it needs to take forward the challenges on climate change. The fact that he's, that he's willing to come and speak to us directly shows how important our sector is in this, in this mix. And I think it's going to be a really fascinating uh, insight from him into, in, into where we're at and where we're heading. And so it's an absolutely not to be missed uh, contribution to our conference, and that's taking place on the first day. So if you haven't already, then then, then please come along and, and hear from him, as well as Paul Wilkinson, the president of Movianto, telling the story of the rollout of the vaccine, um, uh, John Lewis talking about their, their decarbonisation plan for, for their fleet, um, and to Tim Moran, our president, obviously giving his annual address, a whole range of really, really high quality speakers, breakout zones, with uh, discussion uh, on logistics and warehousing issues in one track of transport in another and, and issues around energy efficiency in the others. No, it's going to be a really fantastic couple of days of insight and you don't want to miss it. Um, and it's made possible because of the support we have from companies like Star Refrigeration, Trade Technologies and Unicarrier to our Platinum Club partners who've been able to make that conference uh, possible for us. So I have to get them, get them in. It's pretty good timing, I think, getting um, Lord Deven to talk to us. You know, it'll be a couple of days after uh, we actually find out who the new Prime Minister is. And there's a yeah, piece we'll of a request. See if we can get the Prime Minister in as well. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, hopefully he'll have had a chance to understand kind of what that might mean for, for climate policy, especially on the back of, um, I forget if it was this month or last month, a very critical report by the, the committee he chairs on climate change about the progress we've made. So hearing his thoughts on what happens next, I guess, and what the new prime minister means for industries like the coal chain, I think it will be um, should be a fascinating um, talk. And I think he's going to be part of the panel as well, Shane. So people attending yeah, as well, which is asking questions. As well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I think that's I think that's enough for today, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, we aim for about half an hour, don't we? I mean, we're we're obviously going into the summer period now. I mean, we don't. There's obviously bits of holiday going on in the Coal Chain Federation, but we'll still be here. We're still here supporting everyone. Um, and the main thing will be preparing for Coal Chain Live, I think, Shane, because as soon as we go into September, we're going to be there. Absolutely. So book now, book early, book often, bring people, um, and we look forward to seeing you then. Great. Thanks, Shane. Thanks all. See you next time. <laughs>